Maybe, maybe you remember the feeling. When you were a kid, child, and you found yourself in a mess of your own making. And now you have to tell the responsible grown-up. You kicked the ball through a window, or you dropped that fancy vase from the coffee table, you threw a pine cone at your brother's head, sorry man, drew on a wall, I don't know, right? And now you have to tell the teacher or your parent or whichever grown-up it is, and you're afraid. What will they say? What will the punishment be? So you walk the walk of shame <laughs> towards said grown-up, your little heart thumping hard. You know the feeling. I think I still had that feeling hanging around my body and my emotions when I first paid attention to Psalm 130 as a teenager. I was around 14 years old, full of hormones and conflicting emotions and assorted confusions as teenagers tend to be. And I had just bought my first Bible in English. And for whatever reason that I don't really remember, I ended up in Psalm 130. I actually found that Bible in the shelf earlier today. Still have it. And I found the first verses of Psalm 130. And I don't know if you can see it, but they're marked in orange, right, with a high highlighted in orange. And this is how Psalm 130 goes in this translation here, which is an earlier version of the New International Version. And it says, Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to my cry for mercy. If you, O Lord, kept a record of sins, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness, therefore you are feared. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his words I put my hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen wait for the morning, more than watchmen wait for the morning. O Israel, put your hope in the Lord for with the Lord is unfailing love, and with him is full redemption. He himself will redeem Israel from all their sins. This is what Psalm 130 says, and it was verse 4 that gripped me. But with you there is forgiveness, Therefore, you are feared. Maybe you remember that feeling? Walking up to a grown-up with your little heart thumping 
and confusing feelings of guilt and fear revolving around inside of you? For different reasons that had to do with my age and immaturity, as well as with the religious environment and the faith tradition that I was immersed in, a lot of my spirituality as a teenager had a mark of that feeling. So reading Psalm 130 was very quickly and very easily about facing the depth of my sinfulness, everything that was wrong with me, and then trying hard to find ways of being forgiven so that I could be accepted. And as a teenager, this is sort of a natural part of the existential dilemma, right? Figuring out your place in the world, how to fit in, and often that means in regard to the expectations of everybody else. Your friends, your family, your teachers, your community of faith. But this interpretation of the psalm as sort of a movement from the realization of the depths of one's own sin towards a plea for forgiveness It is not really exclusive to my teenage insecurity. It is actually a fairly common interpretation of the psalm. But what gripped me with Psalm 130 already back then was this odd inversion in the logic regarding my expectation. Because verse says, with you there is forgiveness, therefore you are feared. How does fear come after forgiveness? Isn't it the other way around? Isn't it the way of things that we ask for forgiveness out of fear and hope to be relieved of that fear? And I found this inversion confusing, but somehow reassuring, like it was a gentle whisper of an assurance of forgiveness down the road. I also found it assuring that the psalm then went on and eventually shifted into a plural. Speaking of Israel and the sins of all the people. And that plural spoke to me of belonging. And belonging is something that is important for a teenage boy. But I want to leave my teenage self behind now even though I do want to bring with me into today's reflection these hunches, I'll call them, that I had back then. This thing with the plural, this movement towards the plural, and this thing with the forgiveness that leads to something which this particular translation of the Bible calls fear. But I want to address this now from another angle. Another angle that has a lot to do with this element of the plural, because by all we know, this psalm was meant for a plural. Or in any case, it was actively used in a community setting in its traditional usage. Psalm 130, it's very likely that in your your Bible, you will have an overwriting in the beginning of it that says that it is a song of ascents. Song of Ascents. Now, we've been talking about the Psalms throughout the summer in OIC. We do this every year. And we always talk about this particularity of the Psalms. uh, Because the Psalms are a collection, uh, a compilation of songs and hymns and chants uh, 
that over the centuries were gathered into this book that we now call the book of Psalms, but that emerged and often were written for and used by a community of faith in their community practice of faith. Many of these psalms were used in the active worship of the community all the way to the time of Jesus and beyond. They were chanted together. They were sung together. Many of them were used in connection to certain festivals. Many of them were pilgrimage songs that were recited by the people on their way to the festivals in Jerusalem. And they have, the psalms have this thing that they are inviting us to speak to God in that context, at the same time as we understand them as word of God to us. And we talk about this every, every summer and been talking about it for a few weeks, and we actually have talked already about the songs of, called Songs of Ascents. There's a number of them around this section, there are 14 of them, I think, around this part of the book of Psalms as it is organized today. And there's different theories for what this means, a Song of Ascents. One theory is that this has to do, there are 14 psalms, and this has to do with the 14 steps that led up the temple and that the Levites would would stand on these steps. The Levites were the ones responsible for the worship in the temple, one on each, and would recite the psalm and the steps leading into the place of worship. That's one theory. Uh, Another theory is that these songs had connections to the coming back from exile, so that they were written for, from, or during uh, the period in which Israel was coming back from Israel, back towards Jerusalem, and longing for their life of worship there. And another uh, possibility is that these were pilgrimage songs that were sung by the people as they went to Jerusalem three times a year in ancient Israel for the festivals. There were three festivals that each Jew was expected to attend, and this is when the people of God gathered. And as they go up to Jerusalem, because if you know the geography of Israel, Jerusalem is up on a hilly area, and as you go from anywhere else towards Jerusalem, you're going up. So you can see that language all through the Bible. Whenever you're going to Jerusalem, you're going up, which is both a a geographical and a spiritual worship language that gets, gets mashed together, right? So, Song of Ascents, and this is actually the most likely theory, right? They're walking towards the temple. They're walking towards the festival, the gathering of the people. So, the majority, there's some other theories as well, but the vast majority of them, and especially the most likely ones, like this last one I have said, this is the thing. They have this character of a community of faith singing on their way to the place of meeting with God as a community of faith. This means that this psalm in its traditional usage was most likely sung and used as a whole in the context of a community. And of a community on the way to the festivities that marked and celebrated their place as the people of God. So in this sense, this is not a collection of individuals walking towards a meeting with God with the hope that they might be accepted and included in God's community, right? This is not a collection of individuals that are sort of randomly walking towards Jerusalem with the hopes that they might be included 
in the people of God. They were a community of faith. They were God's people already, and that is why they are going to this place where the people gather for the festivities, the festivals, the celebrations, that they were the people of God. And realizing this gives also a, a possible key for understanding this supposed inversion of verse 4. And here, taking a look at other translations will actually help us. And I'm just going to grab my, you don't have to go too far. I'm just going to grab my newer version of the New International Version where he actually revised this verse. And in this more recent translation, this verse reads, But with you there is forgiveness so that we can with reverence serve you. So that we can with reverence serve you. Now, I, I will grant it, uh, I don't think this has the same poetical ring and punch as the other translation. Uh, but it might be a better translation. Uh, because the notion of fear here had to do with what is often translated or explained as called the fear of the Lord, which is sort of a concept in the Jewish scriptures, the fear of the Lord. And fear of the Lord has less to do with fear as in being afraid of a dog or of a shark or of a violent human being, and it has more to do with awe and with reverence, with perceiving something to be wider and beyond and above our grasp, our understanding, and our control. That kind of fear, the fear of the Lord, was something to be actively cultivated. This perception of the otherness encompassing bigness it's a bad word, of God, <laughs> right? And this notion was embedded into the notion of serving, of service, which was central to the whole logic of the festivals of ancient Israel. To spell this out a bit more clearly, the people of God were the people of God because God had chosen them, shown them grace in choosing them to be God's people despite their sins, and call them into the service of God's grace. So forgiveness does have, in this sense, it does have to do with God's acceptance, but in the community, in the context of the community of faith and of their faith tradition, it was prior to their pilgrimage and not the goal of it. It had to do with the very identity formation of these people. Their sacrifices and their festivities were about maintaining their relationship with this God, cultivating it in their life of worship and in their devotional private life and in their community life. Again, as I mentioned before, a lot of these sacrifices were communal meals. It was about cultivating it ritually, and cultivating it communally, as a community. Now, all of this invites us, I believe, to a different way of reading this psalm, which is far deeper 
and I would argue more compelling and faithful to a wider narrative of the story of God's redemptive presence in the world. And when we look at this psalm, and when I today look at this beginning of the psalm, out of the depths I cry to you, Lord, Lord, hear my voice, let your ears be attentive to my cry for mercy. This action of noticing the depths has to do with more than myself. I look at the community around me. I look at the ground we step. I smell the air we breathe. I open the news. I see the violence around and within. I see the degrading of the soil I walk on. The changing taste of the water I drink. The broken relationships among the people. The depth of sin has a... (laughs) It's around. It's in the air we breathe. It's in the things we step. And the same things blended with the same things that have the beauty and have the, the witness of creation. There's also all of that. And I realize my part in it as well. But it is this realizing of the depths that makes us cry for mercy. Mercy for myself, yes, but mercy for the other. Mercy for the world. Out of these depths of realizing this brokenness that surrounds and touches me. And yes, touches me in particular ways that has to do with me, but I don't separate myself from all of these. And then we move into verse 3 to 4. If you, Lord, kept a record of sins, Lord, who could stand, but with you there is forgiveness so that we can with reverence serve you. And there is a realization and a proclamation of grace, of a God who is invested in restoration rather than destruction. A God who forgives and calls a people to serve him actively in the world in ways of justice and grace is a God who is invested in restoration, in redemption, in and throughout history. A realization that the holy ground we stand in and on so that it can be called holy is a space of grace, is a space of encounter with God in the middle of the messiness of history and of ourselves. We realize that taking off our sandals is a ritual, <laughs> ritual step of, getting, of stepping closer to the ground with everything in it and the ways in which God is touching it. And then we move on to verse 5 and 6. I wait for the Lord. This is a beautiful part. I wait for the Lord. My whole being waits. And in his word, I put my hope. I wait for the Lord more than watchmen. Wait for the morning more than watchmen. Wait for the morning. A projection of hope from that grace. The possibility of mourning in the middle of the morning, (laughs) right? Of the sunrise. The possibility that these 
things may somehow flourish. A projection of hope from this space of grace. And then we move on to verse 7 and 8. Israel, put your hope in the Lord, for with the Lord is unfailing love, and with him is full redemption. He himself will redeem Israel from all their sins. And there is a call for life marked by the hope that emanates from that grace. That which defines them as the people of God is their call to be part of this. We could talk more about this, but I, I want to move a bit forward because if this is an approach to the psalm that safeguards us from an individualistic and ultimately self-centered spirituality yeah, and uh, often a spirituality with a very unhealthy view of ourselves, it is nonetheless an approach that demands our full engagement. And the language of forgiveness is an anchoring language for our engagement with the world. Because the forgiveness that is given is given to be given. <laughs> and it is also a language and practice that is inherent to our tradition of faith as Christians. And if we have up to now been reflecting from the practices and prayers of faith of ancient Israel, I would like to now look into what is a central practice of prayer for us followers of Christ. For us who call ourselves Christians. And I want to read with you. I know that I didn't give you the text, but that's fine. You can just leave it like that and you guys can just listen. And I want to read with you from Matthew 6. I'm going to read from verse 9. This, then, is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. This is how St. Matthew tells us of Jesus teaching us how to pray, teaching the disciples the, what has been come to, to be called the, the Lord's Prayer, though it is a prayer for the disciples to pray. And if we read through this prayer, forgiveness is the hinge towards practice and engagement in the Lord's Prayer. It starts by recognizing our Father in heaven, asking that his name be hallowed, that his kingdom come, that his will be done, that he will provide, but then we're pulled into it. 
the forgiveness that welcomes us in also puts us on a move. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven those who sin against us. And Matthew has an emphasis on the practice and not only the theology of forgiveness. This is not just rhetoric. Matthew wants to let us know. This is not just how you pray. This is how you live. And when we put this prayer and the psalm side by side, they have a a similar taste, character. That has to do with with the actualization of the things we are asking for and receiving from God in our own individual and collective bodies. That the things that we recognize about God's grace become grace in our individual and collective bodies. That the forgiveness that welcomes us in and that we ask of God becomes the practice of forgiveness that we live in. That the realization of our moving around in the depths of brokenness in the world becomes through the grace of God also our engagement in restoring it and demanding it. That our request for our daily bread becomes our fight for justice, for bread on the table of those who hunger. That our thankfulness for the freshness of air that we breathe becomes our struggle with the, for a world where people can breathe without getting sick and dying. That our request for justice becomes an engagement with the broken. That our call to not be led into temptation but are delivered in the time of trial means that we don't run away from the world but believe in Christ's act in it. That we can live and sing as people of the God of grace in the world. These songs that are sung together, this faith that is lived as a community in the world, invites us into a lived forgiveness, a lived grace, a lived transformation and redemption. And I wonder, What shape can our communities of faith take?
and our lives of faith take. If our engagement with our own brokenness is an engagement with the brokenness of the world based on grace and forgiveness. What happens when the things we ask for and yearn for and the peace we cry for becomes the peace we act from? Yes, in hope. Yes, in defiance. Yes, despite the fact, despite all the evidence to the contrary. It's hard to have hope. It's not easy. But then we gather here and we sing together and we say together, with you there is forgiveness so that we can with reverence serve you. That is the God we're serving. Then our service is not confined to this space. It's not confined to our prayer. It's not confined to our song. That might be nice. It wouldn't be grace. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord turn his face upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord make his face shine upon each and every one of your lives, that he may bring you peace. So go in the peace of our Lord Jesus Christ and serve the world, serve each other, serve the Lord.